tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. Miners of all. Oh, hi, Mecca. We live in Christchurch. We're about 20 minutes out of town, but we are right in the rural area. Foals in the paddocks at the moment, just full of baby foals. The peony farm is in full bloom, so I can get peonies at the farm gate. It's a magnificent day in Christchurch. We don't get them very often. You listen to us online there? I do. I listen to it actually through this trusty gadget that a teenager has and doesn't want called Alexa, and I just ask her to play Mecca on ABC. And we're miles ahead of you. It'll be almost lunchtime in a minute. I'm coming for lunch. We should come over to Christchurch. I'd love to come and do a program there. Can we do a program at your place? Oh, that'd be great in the backyard, as long as it's not a windy day. What? We swing between gale force nor'easters, and if it's not a nor'easter, it's a gale force nor'easter. So today we're making the most of it. Doors are flung wide open. As an Australian living in New Zealand, I pine for the warm weather. 25 degrees today is a heat wave for locals. <laughs> <laughs> You need to come to the South Island, though. It's vastly different to the North. I call it the land of milk and honey. And maybe the week before you come, there'll be a bit of snow dump because we can often get snow in summertime, so then the Alps will have snow on them, and yet we can be sitting at the beach looking at the Alps. Still, it's great to listen to you guys because it just makes me feel like I'm back home as well. Well, Kim, I can tell you, you've picked up a little lemon and six. Everybody says that. (laughs) You've picked a little bit of it. I can still hear the little Aussie shining through. Yeah, and the Kiwis here, they can pick me a mile off, apparently. <laughs> Kim, it's great to talk to you. I'll see you in Christchurch. You too. Look right. forward to it. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Wherever you are, around the world, all over the place, g'day. You can give us a ring, 1300 700 We'll be in Melbourne next Sunday morning, um, wither the weather. Let it rain, let it, what's that song? Let it rain, let it pour, let it rain. Yeah, um, it's supposed to be going to rain, so we'll be in O'Donnell Gardens in St Kilda. We've got a little tent, but I don't know if we've got a big tent, but... Um, I don't know. Let's just see. Let's just wing it and see what happens. Although our weatherman, uh, Mike Griffin, says absolutely incredible stormy November weather around Australia, especially on the East Coast. But anyway, we'll just see what happens. We'll see what. But I'd love to see you. Haven't been to. Haven't. It's been a long, long time. Kiss me once and kiss me twice and kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Uh, and good morning to uh, all my friends. In and around Melbourne, love to see you. Abel Koala says uh, Janelle was the name of a semi-trailer I observed this past Friday night. I thought you'd be interested, as you often speak about the names of truck, uh, truck companies you see on the road. I do. Listen, people like uh, B Goods Transport and Costellos, Holliers, Carl Transport, Macedon Transport, Hardy's Haulage, and Kel Murrells, Murrells and Tytech. I love it. Adam's Adam's Sawmill, there you go. And Brown's Slipways, uh, Hardy's Haulage, Brim's, John Ianelli, is it? And Fari, Fari Transport. Uh, Kingsbury Bulk Haulage, yes, I do, uh, Janelle. Anyway, she says, the name Abel Koala prompted me to find out about the company. Abel Koala's focus is on the quality of life and being... 
the well-being, sorry, of those with disabilities or ageing. Our main objective is to provide harmony and peace mentally, physically and spiritually. Sounds a wonderful objective. The purpose of our work is to understand the needs of each individual. We listen to your show regularly, says Janelle, it often prompts interesting family conversations about all subject matters. Thank you, says Janelle. Janelle, thank you too. uh, Thanks for getting in touch. Your program, this is this came in a little while ago, but I thought I'd read it because it's interesting, just a little piece. Your program and everything about it must surely remind everybody, as it does me, that we are Australians rather than Queenslanders, Victorians or whatever. I dislike jokes which belittle other states and some journalists are guilty of encouraging this attitude and newspapers even encourage that attitude and I think it stinks. The world has some bitter examples where rivalry becomes hatred, leading to violence. Says, uh, what was his name? Mr Fotheringham. And that came in a long while ago, but I just came across it because I was going through my back pages. And also this. This came in from Barbara Mullins. I don't know if anyone ever read The Seven Little Australians, but our friend Jack, Jack McCoy, lives at Yarrahappany. Um, Jack's a filmmaker. But... um, Barbara Mullen said this to me uh, about a caller we had um, a grand, who was a granddaughter of Ethel Turner. This is quite a while ago. And she spoke about the naming of the station Yarrahappany in Seven Little Australians. I have before me, said uh, Barbara Mullins, a letter dated May the 26th, 1937 from Ethel Turner, who used to be Ethel Kerr-Lewis, in which she writes... The Aboriginal meaning of the name of the station Yarrahappany, which I used in Seven Little Australians, is native bear rolling down a hill. So say the authorities. To be quite honest, said Ethel Turner, I did not know this meaning when I used the name, or I should have rather revelled in it and rushed to let one of the seven explain it. The letter was written by my mother, Beverly Berry, and I found it amongst her papers after a death in... uh, This was uh, back in the 90s. Um, in the 30s, Beverly Berry was a minor poet and official of the Fellowship of Australian Writers and a freelance journal- journalist at the Bulletin. So Yarra Happeny, but at the time of writing the book, apparently, Ethel says she didn't know what Yarra Happeny meant. Otherwise, she would have been included and incorporated in, in Seven Little Australians. Uh, you know, get one of the seven to explain it and thereby hangs the tail. There's so many... And wonderful things in our back pages. Our number thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two. Lovely all over news coming up, and why I live where I live from all over the place. Uh, stay tuned. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, good morning, Macca. This is Alison Ray calling from Emerald in Queensland, Central Queensland. Hi, Alison. It's, it's raining. Would oh, you believe it? Is that, how good is that? <laughs> How good is that? We've got an old house with a tin roof and it sounds brilliant. So, Macker, I've spoken to you a few times from um, Zambia. I've, we've got a little school over there, a group of us, and it's called our Rainbow House. And I've rung you from over there. One of the volunteers that was with us had to jump up on the roof of a car <laughs> and um, because we had no internet. So, um, anyway, she was calling Maka from up there at about 1.30 in the morning. But anyway, <laughs> we, <laughs> we had a great conversation. And that little girl is now our daughter-in-law. So that's pretty, pretty good, isn't it? I'll say. Uh, Alison, yeah, yeah, just yeah. tell me this. Has it been dry in Emerald? 
Oh, it's been terrible, just terrible. You know, we had a lot of, I had the boarding kennels here for 23 years and had beautiful gardens and that, and they're all gone. But anyway, it'll come back, won't it? That's what usually happens. It, well, um, there's, there's something nice. Where did I read it the other day? Uh, somebody, I don't know, because I read so many bits and pieces looking for material for the program, but somebody said, you know, there's nothing like... Um, especially when you've had 360 dry days and when you get some rain, it's just, it puts a spring in your step, doesn't it? It puts a spring in your step. Maka, my friend and I have put a book together and I'm sure you'd love it. Mm -hmm. It's called Wouldn't Swap It for Quids. (laughs) That's a good name, yeah. (laughs) And my husband, Terry, uh, worked for Dalgetty's for 55 and a half years. Well, of course, Dalgetty's changed companies a whole heap of times, but he worked for that organisation. So after that 55 years, I thought, oh, this needs a book. You know, you can meet a lot of people along the way and those stock and station agents are, are characters of their own. And um, I, I got on to, it was during COVID really, when there wasn't much to do. So I started ringing a few people and um, retired stock and station agents, meatworks buyers, auctioneers, sort of horse trainers. And they just came in with so many stories. And it was going to be a book of about 120 pages and it's gone to about 520. (laughs) Anyway, we published it um, for our 50th wedding anniversary last December. And um, we were really scared to order the books, Macca, because, you know, we didn't know much about book selling and that sort of thing. But anyway, we ordered 500 copies with, and, and we sold the whole 500 in 10 days. <laughs> uh, not as good as Harry, but, you know, it was pretty good. Yeah. And, um, and um, then we ordered another 250 and we sold them. But just getting those stories together was so much fun. You know, we reunited with people. We met people up that we hadn't seen for years. And it was just a wonderful thing to do. And, and it's certainly not politically correct or anything, but it's good yarns of that that era you know the 60s 70s and or even earlier and I just heard you talking about um transports and that there's a couple of really good transport yarns in there too so um and I well I I think when you it seems to me that the country life and when you're dealing with animals and plants and wheat and you're doing yep. stuff all the time and there's always ups yep. and downs and there's fires that'll burn down the wheat or the hail or yep. or you've got animals and uh, all that sort of stuff. There's always there's always a drama going on, if you know what I mean. It seems to yeah, me. Yeah, there's always a bit of drama. Yeah. And, you know, some of the blokes I rang, would, they'd say to me, you know, and some of them are in their 80s. One's in his 93. So... He said, oh, mate, I haven't got much to tell you. You know, I was pretty, you know, we just ploughed through it sort of thing. And then about four hours later, you'd get off the phone or or get off his veranda and he'd follow you out to the car. You know, they they were really hungry to tell me their tales. So... So there's 120 different stories in the book from from different people and um, lots of people have enjoyed it and loved it and, and um, it's going really well. So we're just starting on our second book now. <laughs> and mind you, we, we're 
in our early 70s and um, Kerry's read six books, so she's going to hate me telling this, and, and I've read five. So <laughs> we didn't really know where to start. Where do you get a publisher? Where do you get an editor? And, well, it's, but anyway, so, we've learned all that. Yeah, and, well, um, exactly. And the more you write, the more you write and the more books you do and the more you're involved in it, the, yeah, well, it's, yes. just like, it's, like, it's life. Uh, it's a new yes. life for you and it's a learning process and you'll learn it stuff. It is a learning the, process and I just can't wait to get into the new one, you know, but you, you always think, oh, God, I've got to do some other work today. But you just really want to get – once you get into it, I can understand authors sitting there typing all day. You know, you just want to get into it again. So, and it's called uh, – I wouldn't be yeah. – what? Uh, what's it wouldn't, called? Wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be – I uh, wouldn't swap it for quids. Wouldn't swap it for quids. All yeah, right, I'll Alison. Send, that was, I'll send it down to you. I'll send you a copy. I think oh, you'd really love it, I'm sure. All right, Alison. And yeah. I suppose that Thanks. rain's wide, widespread, is it, I hope? Yeah, it's pretty gentle, but, you know, we'll take gentle. It'll be good. Yeah. Yep. Good yep. on you, Alison. G'day, Macca. Richard from Westaway, Tasmania. How you doing? Good, thanks, Rich. What's happening? Well, um, I've, I've spoken to you in the past, um, from from uh, from New York playing a game of cricket and uh, up on top of the raspberry harvester, um, but today is um, is International Day of the Toilet. Come on, you're, you're <laughs> unbelievable. This this is this has gone to ridiculous proportions. Sorry, I'm just looking for something in my bag. Go on, yeah, keep. <laughs> so, International Day of the Toilet, and um, and at Westaway we're all pretty stoked. Uh, we've recently opened public public toilets. We've got five public toilets here in the little town of Westaway, and uh, and I reckon it's a, it's worth celebrating. Well, so, I think so too. I remember you. I remember. I remember you rang, and that 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 lady gave you a terrible raspberry. Is that right? <laughs> I've I've been blown a raspberry. She went. Or two. <laughs> Yeah, when when you were to, right when you're talking, I thought that was how rude. But anyway, um, not necessary. So, five toilets in in Westaway, really. Um, I'm not sure whether to laugh or cry. Um, I think, oh, I, it's, especially if you feel the urge, you yeah, it's very good to head to Westaway. I suppose is that what you're saying? That's right. Look, there's a few more people stopping in the town these days, mm. so. Um... But, but 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 also on top of that, um, you know, it, it, the, the the toilets are at the Westaway Town Hall, and uh, and the hall committee's done a great job, you know, getting them together. Um, but, but they're also having a big garage sale day today at the hall oh, to see. sort of um, not not necessarily to commemorate or to to recognise the toilets, but mm. it, it sort of it sort of works and it's just happened to fall on the right day. International Toilet Day. <laughs> That's nonsense. You just you just made that up, Richard. I, 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 I don't I don't appreciate that either. You know, I mean, people bring here today's the International Day of the Toilet. That's is that true? Well, they're they're, they're very important, Macker, and so so much so much of the world doesn't actually have access to toilets. Exactly, and, and, we're, and we're we're just very lucky that um, <laughs> you know our town's finally on the map, and um, yeah, and it hasn't gone down the toilet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay. Now, listen, tell me, you said you were in New York. When were you in New York? Uh, back in 2015. My wife was working over there and, um, yeah, we, we had a couple of years um, over, over there. And what did, how did you find New York in 2015? See, that's eight years ago or so, but how was it yeah. then? Did you enjoy uh, it or? Yeah, we, had, we had a great time. It was before, um, it was before Co- Trump and... Before uh, COVID? And, yeah, before COVID. And uh, there, there's, a, you know, I mean, it's, it's very different to living in a little town of Westaway, I can tell you. Mm. Um, and 
but you know, a fantastic experience. Lots of lovely people. Found some Aussies. Yeah, played some cricket, and um, yeah, could, could yeah, couldn't be happier that we we had those times. Who did you play cricket? Who's the bloke that rings us, Kel, from New York from time to time? He was working the stock exchange. <laughs> And he played for the Kookaburras. There's a competition that's, over there, isn't there? That's, that's right. That's right. I played for the Kookaburras with uh, Michael Percy, uh, a lovely bloke. Um, and he's still the captain of the Kookaburras over there too. Yeah, I've always meant to go over there, but, you know, maybe my time has been and gone rich. Who knows? But uh, I can't play anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the man I used to be. But um, I could still bowl a leggy, I suppose. But oh, um, they, 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 they give you a game, Mac. They, they always need... Uh, <laughs> They always need a good leggy over there. Yeah, I could feel in slips. I'm, I'm not the fastest cab off the rank now, but um, I could I could feel in slips, I suppose. Yeah, so I didn't have to do too much running. But anyway, yeah, there you go. Um, I'm not sure how. I wonder how New York is these days in 2023. I wonder what it's like. I've heard some, you know, various stories that it's not the place it was. But no, nowhere is the place it was. I suppose, Rich. Anyway. Well, I, th- I, th- I think there's a lot of places in Australia that, are, you know, I think... Um, well, Westerway's going up, ahead. Yeah. When, yeah, Westerway's going ahead in leaps and bounds, if that's what you're about to say, because it's got five toilets. <laughs> so. It is. So, and, and, the hall, and the hall committee's strong and the, yeah. the community hall is in a great shape. So, All right, Rich, good on you, mate. Uh, weather report quickly for Westerway. Uh, weather report looking, looking nice and, um, and it's a good day. Uh, for the for the first uh, first day of picking strawberries, we picked a few this morning already, uh-huh. and sending it over for the garage sale. So it's um, there you go. Uh, not nice nice day in Westerway. Good on you, Richard. Nice to talk to you. You as well. Cheers, Becca. Thanks, mate. Bye. <laughs> Helen's on the line from where are you, Helen? I'm I'm actually holidaying in uh, Willowvale, which is in Queensland, just behind Movie World, really. Mm-hmm. But I'm from Rosebud, and I do dog sitting. So I've come up here to look after a 15-year-old old-timer, Simone, and it's absolutely magic where I am at the moment. It's just beautiful. It's such a change from the seaside where I live uh-huh. to look out over the hinterland. It's just beautiful. So where is but Willowvale? Willowvale is, is almost behind Movie World, so the Coomera area. Uh-huh. You know Coomera? Yeah, I've been. Anyway. Yeah, so yeah? It's, it's, um, it's inland from the coast. Yes, it is. It is, yes. But um, I went to the Australian Extravaganza Outback show the other night and it was just mind-boggling, all the horsemanship and, and, the, and the story of the Australian um, battlers, you know, in the farms and trying to sort of get through the drought and the floods and things that Australia has. Where was it that was on? Really, it, it was at what they call the um, Australian Outback Extravaganza. It's near Movie World, mm. um, but it's just extraordinary, and um, I'd really recommend if anyone's on holidays to come and see it. Did it's you take? Wonderful. Did you take Simone or? No, poor old Simone. She's a fifteen-year-old Labrador. So <laughs> no, she she's finding it difficult to walk, unfortunately. But yeah. she's a gorgeous dog. We're we're sitting here in my bedroom, um, and I thought, yes, I'll try putting Macca on my laptop on my iPad, mm-hmm. and yes, it's working. So well, well, anyone go. that um, yeah, the the app works really well. So Helen, so, where does where does dog sitting take you? Well, actually, I'm going to come up for a busy time back at um, Rosebud because uh, the holiday makers are coming down over Christmas and they can't have their dogs on the foreshore when they're caravanning. 
So I look after their dogs and um, then they come and have fun with them because they don't leave them at home. So it's taken me everywhere, actually. <laughs> Anyone that um, wants to get on poor sitters, they can find me and I, I go where they are. And I suppose so, Christmas and New Year's are a good time because everyone wants to go away and often they can't take the dog or they don't want to take the dog. They want a break from the it, dog or whatever. That's exactly right. That's what happens, you know, down where I am on the seaside. And I've actually, when I go home, I'm looking after four little dogs um, because the people at Sorrento are having a wedding and they can't have the dogs around the place when they're having the wedding at their home. So I'm looking after the dogs. <laughs> Down the road, the dogs are barking, uh, said, <laughs> said, said Bob, Bob, Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, th- oh. All right. Well, but, yeah. Enjoy, enjoy Willowvale. I, I am. I am. It's it's absolutely amazing. It's just such a different um, place. And of course, we had the storm go through the other day, which we, luckily we didn't get the hail. Um, Southport got the hail, but um, it was really torrential. So um, it's freshened everything up because it's been very humid. Absolutely. But, um, Our weatherman says it absolutely incredible stormy November weather around the place. That's right. Mm. And all of the lady that I'm staying, she's reliant on water because she's got tank water, you see. So she's reliant on rain. So um, it really brings it home, you know, when there's no rain. All right, Helen, good on you. Good luck with Simone. Good. Yes, and hopefully I'll get to see you in St Kilda because you're coming down there next Sunday, aren't you? That's right, yeah. So Donald Gardens yeah. in, in St Kilda. So come down and... Yeah. I'll, oh, I'll try to get up from the peninsula if I can and oh, say hi. All right, good on you. <laughs> good to speak to you, Macca. You too, Helen. Okay. Bye. Bye. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, it's Clyde Thompson. How are you? Oh, g'day, Clyde. How are you? Where are you? I'm in... Uh... Nairobi, Kenya, working with the AMREF Flying Doctor Service over here. As you know, I've worked here for a long time. And that's the AMREF stands for African Medical Education Research Foundation. But uh, we do a lot of primary health work, and but we also do a lot of medical evacuations as well. And I can tell you, it's raining over here. It hasn't been raining for a while. They're very happy to have the rain, uh, but they're getting a little bit too much at the moment. But we've We've still been going very well. We're doing a lot of evacuations out of places like Sudan and places like that, which are having upset. 1.3 million people are displaced in Sudan, and it's really terrible state of affairs there. But, uh, uh, yeah, United I, Nations are saying it must stop, but, yeah, no one takes any notice of the United Nations these days. I had a, I had a taxi driver the other day who was – because I usually ask the taxi driver because they're usually from somewhere yeah. else, and I asked him, and he was from the Sudan, and uh, – he said he wasn't going to go back if he couldn't help it. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It is. But we, we're doing a lot of work. We're building a new university out here to train health workers. We're currently training health workers now. That's been uh, on land given to us by Kenyatta, who was the previous governor, uh, previous president. Sorry, mm. there. But the current president, Roto, is uh, who came in on the basis of everything's going to be cheaper, and of course everything's more, more expensive. So. And uh, people are doing it really tough over here. But we still continue to work with people like the Bill Gates Foundation, particularly Melinda Gates at the moment, to provide primary health care education out to the remote areas of Kenya and across Tanzania, Uganda. And uh, we got the Bill Gates Award for the best uh, primary health care in Africa recently. And we also 
been uh, asked by United Nations to provide uh, CEO Dr. Katinji to provide uh, a be the representative of the United Nations for primary healthcare in Africa. So we're doing pretty well under difficult circumstances. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you what it's like living there, but just mentioning uh, the Gateses, they, they've they've parted ways, haven't they, Belinda and uh, That's uh, Bill? Right, yes. but, yeah, well, she opted to stay with AMREF Health Africa, and we're very fortunate. And she's extremely... Um, Good. She does um, visual lunches, or virtual lunches with uh, staff, uh, and she'll be on one end, and they'll make up the menu, and she'll cook it there, and they'll cook it over here, and they sit back in front of a television and talk about what they're doing with, with the donations we get from the Gates Foundation, which is a really nice way of doing it. I'll say, I'll say. Um, and what what do you notice about uh, living in Kenya, Clyde? How long have you you've been there? A good while, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I, I come back as far as I'm leaving next week to come back to uh, Australia, and then I'll be back in Broken Hill a couple of weeks after that. Mm. Mm. But, so that's good. And living there is what? Oh, Describe living it. here is uh, well. The living here is if you want to uh, uh, drive, then you just go from one traffic jam to another. Uh, that's the trouble about sort of some prosperity, but. Uh, it's it's interesting. Um, there's no social security here, so people work or don't work, uh, and uh, or starve basically. Uh, but it's um, everybody who has a job um, supports two or three families, and that's the way it seems to work. But uh, everybody here is this uh, uh, really compatible, gets on well with people. There's always someone helping someone else here, and education is a really big thing here. There are, you can go out to the, the bush, you can go out to places uh, like Ampicelli, which is a, a lodge out there in the middle, about 200 kilometres away from uh, Kenya, uh, Nairobi, and they've, they've built a school. And education is their way out of poverty here, and uh, it really is a, a, a something that everybody wants to do, and it, educate their children. And everybody yeah. goes to school? Kids go to school? Everybody go to... goes to school. There are no children on the streets. They know they're... And uh, they were at school, and even the children in the um, in the built-up areas, they try and send them to boarding school, which they believe is going to be a better education. Mm. And uh, that's one of the things that we're running. We have a university, and uh, we'll be building a hospital soon, uh, is to educate people who do primary healthcare work. But we're expanding it out to do other disciplines. So we see that education is the way out of poverty for most Kenyans. Well, for everybody, really, isn't it, Clyde? That's uh... it is. Yeah, you're right, Maka. That's it's it's the pathway. But uh, boy, no, no one doesn't want to go to school here. It's really interesting when you talk to the children here. They all say we want to go to school here. And it's interesting, you know, my partner Deb Hunt, she was out here, and she went to one of the schools and she taught them how to write uh, applications for grants for to, to run the school, which is and they they all do it. This is small children. Uh, writing to get funding for their school to continue their education. And, uh, yeah, that's just such a good thing. It's, uh, I look back on my schooling and I wasted, I wasted much of my time at school because um, um, I was just interested in sport and, and, uh, and lunchtime. But, uh, <laughs> but um, doing something like French I thought was great. I love French. I love speaking the language and, and I still – speak it now with you know there's a few french shops around the place and and i love uh, just the fact that i went to school and learned about french and france um 
it's just one great so and that's just one little thing from a kid who was you know otherwise engaged but going to school you can learn so many wonderful things especially these days the, the world seems to have opened up with geology geology and all those sort of things that we never thought of doing at school but um yeah um yeah, yeah. education's the way to go it is well you do well in western africa because french is a uh, uh, spoken there quite widely because uh, France, of course, colonised a lot of those states out in Burkina Faso and places like that. So yeah, you go well. But some of the one of the interesting things is that some of the uh, evacuations we do are quite quite long because we use a, we do commercial evacuations to subsidise the primary health work and the uh, the charitable evacuations we do across there, but uh, mainly work for. Yeah, United Nations work and also for the embassies. We go into Mogadishu a bit, not so much now. One interesting thing about Mogadishu, it's not such a uh, hostile side at the moment. The terrorists, the El Shabaab, but they have been buying a lot of property, would you believe, in Nairobi? Wow. And, uh, it's, uh, and it's, they own now a large major uh, uh, Westfield type uh, shopping center. So you can you can uh, uh, you can see that they're converting uh, the money they've made in by uh, um, hostaging and boats and boats and stuff like that, or uh, they're now converting it into uh, into real estate. So uh, interesting. Yeah, I'll mm. say, Clyde um, might see you back in Australia, but keep in touch. Nice to know you're listening in uh, Nairobi. Hey, well. I- Okay, that's the way that everybody, all the Australians and non-Australians actually keep in touch with you. If they don't listen to you at night, they listen to your podcast. So uh, you keep up the good work there. You're the voice of Australia over here. <laughs> so we like to hear it. Thanks, Clyde. Great to talk to you, mate. G'day, Macca. Chris here from Toowoomba. How are you? Yeah, good. Wouldn't mind some of that rain that I heard your caller uh, getting in Emerald. We're... Um, on the Downs, Darling Downs here this morning, and it's just got a bit of uh, high cloud, nice and cool, but there's uh, a rain forecast, so it'll be really good. Yeah, I don't know how much. I asked uh, Alison how much they get. She said it's sort of steady rain, but I don't know how much they've got or how widespread it is. But, um, yeah, it's dry around the place, uh, Chris. Yeah, I'm just uh, driving from uh, west, southwest, um, from Toowoomba out to Pittsworth today. We're running the uh, another day in our Toowoomba region koala count. So we've uh, in the month of November each year we uh, gather, gather community groups in different areas across the Toowoomba region and uh, and look for koalas and count them. And how's it going? Ah, uh, pretty good this year. Although it's been dry, it's been dry. So and I just hear there's. Um, some uh, bushfires uh, southwest of um, of Pittsworth this morning. It's going to watch and act now, so hopefully that doesn't in- interrupt our count, and we certainly won't interrupt uh, them as they. Uh, you know, that's probably a lot further further west from where we're going. But a really good group from Pittsworth Landcare with Alistair this morning will be gathering, and uh, we'll around a, an area of Yarran Lee if. Uh, you, you know the area between Pittsworth and Brookstead um, on the Darling Downs, and it should be a great morning. Well, that's uh, great stuff. Did you hear the – I don't know if you heard the call this morning. It was I think it was Julie, and she'd just been overseas. Uh, 
sort of backpacking, but not really backpacking. Um, and they'd been to Crete and places like that. And she said, "There's gum trees over there, but um, yeah, but they're not really. Um, I don't know. She said it was something different about them. They were drier than in Australia. I couldn't believe that. But anyway, she might have got a uh, uh, facts uh, a little mixed up because I would have thought it's hotter in Australia than it is in Europe. But anyway, um, she said, yeah, that, well, it she, won't be too hot today here at. Um, out at Yarra and Lee, but the amazing thing in this this area is, um, you know, people when they go out for the first time looking for koalas, they look in the best trees. Oh, that'd be a good tree for koalas. Well, no, you you it doesn't. Uh, you you can't pick it as to where the koalas will be. Sometimes in the scrubbiest looking uh, uh, trees that are going, you'll find uh, it's obviously the mm. uh, species that they love, and it's uh, just a great day to get out and in the fresh air and. Um, I'll say. Yes, she said that Lufthansa were fly will fly gum leaves from Australia to Germany to yeah. the zoo in Germany. I think for, because there's koalas wow. over there. I, I didn't know that, um, but I assume that. But see, we grow gum trees all over the world. But do they only eat certain sorts of gums? They won't eat everything, will they? Or will they? What's the story? They won't. And um, talking to uh, Bill Ellis from. Um, from UQ, University of Queensland, uh, just yesterday, it really highlighted for us that, you know, what, what they might eat down on the coast in Queensland is against um, uh, up here on the downs. It could be completely different species. In fact, when we say what, what they're eating up here, they go, oh, no, 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 koalas don't eat that. And it's obviously um, they must be getting the right minerals from the particular species. And so it's just fascinating to learn about the koalas and then learn how much we don't know. Yeah, so, so uh, when I grew up, I always thought they only ate a couple of uh, couple of um, sorts of of gum tree, but that's not true. They'll eat all sorts, will they? Well, yeah, Bill was depending where they are, depending on where they are, and and obviously their dietary uh, dietary needs, what sort of minerals they 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 need of it, but also you've got um, you know a very complex uh, gut system that the koalas have to break down the toxins in the eucalypt eucalypt gums and uh gum leaves and so yeah it's uh it's a bit of a mystery and with the the academics doing the research um there's just so much more to learn and and we need to given that they're um here uh in certainly in southeast queensland they've been um uh registered as as endangered now and uh but they're all over the place too aren't they they're all over the place so they're in southeast queensland they're out they're out at lightning ridge they're on kangaroo island they're all over the place so i assume that different many different sorts of gum trees grow in those places so maybe uh, they'll yes we'll we'll make a list of a central Queensland, and we, we we've got the book from um, from Brisbane, uh, published in Brisbane, but we're now a lot sort of more sceptical as to uh, what the, our koalas up here might be looking if we're looking at uh, planting programs, because we've got to make sure that um, the local koalas are, are getting the species that they'll they will thrive on. So yeah. All right. Well, uh, good luck, Chris, and happy counting. Can I say that? Well, yeah, just hope, hopefully our, our necks aren't too sore tonight after um, a big day out on the downs. All right. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Macca. See ya. Bye. Hello. G'day, Macca. Richard Weston. Hi, Richard. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Macca, we grow um, white asparagus down here in Tassie, a place called Brighton. I've uh, been doing it several years, mm. and I believe you, you have some 
some interest in it. Well, I just wondered about white asparagus, and I know you can always find green asparagus in the shops. Uh, white asparagus, I remember talking about it years ago, and it was much uh, more uh, labour-intensive, um, harder to harvest and all that sort of stuff, and I suppose it's still harvest by hand. Tell us the story, Richard. Why did you get into white asparagus? It's a, it's a long story, Macca, so I won't bore you too much, but um, we changed it based on the fact that... Um, uh, 10, 12 years ago, that nobody was really growing it, um, the proper European white asparagus. So we could see there was an opportunity in the market. And um, we grew it from seed, so it takes quite a long process. Um, it is very labour intensive, uh, but it's a fantastic product and, and quite distinctively different from the green. Yeah, I'll say, uh, I remember tasting it years ago and I hadn't seen it. Um, I went to a restaurant years ago and there was white asparagus and I used to have it now and again and but you know it just hasn't been there for uh, a good while so I just wondered what had happened so you're the story so um, I, uh, there obviously aren't that many growers Richard. No there's, no, there's not um, you need a, a, uh, to be fairly patient with it as I say it's, it's, it's very labour intensive but um, to me, I think that's a positive. You know, you've you've got to be able to bend your back and, and work hard, and henceforth the, the cost of it is quite expensive. But um, a beautiful flavour, and um, it's a it's got a really nice little niche in the market based on the fact it comes comes on into line for us about first of September, and uh, it uh, fills that gap between the veg winter veggies coming out and uh, the before the spring vegetables come in. So. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful product, and it uh, it likes the Tassie climate. That's one of the things that we found that um, with the with the change in in the weather, as we all know, um, it likes the frosts and the cold, and uh, it uh, really retains that beautiful that flavour, the complexity. So, how to, to, to explain to people how it grows? It grows underground. Is that is that the story? How do you yeah. grow? Tell me. Yeah, look, look, it's an interesting one. When when you plant your your crowns or your seed. You, you plant them in a, let's say, for want of a better term, a, a ditch in the ground in long lengths, and then uh, you cover that over over the next three years to, so the ground level uh, is back to normal level. And then when you come into harvest, you uh, you need to mound up another 20 centimetres. So you, effectively, you've got a 40-centimetre profile. So then once you mound up your soil over that, you then put a, a plastic on top. It's white on one side and black on the other. And that can effectively uh, manipulate the crop for about three weeks. The white will slow it down three weeks and the black will speed it up. Um, when you come to harvest, you peel back the, the plastic and with your your, uh, your fingers, you expose the spears. You'll just see the tips of them. You expose the spears, dig down five to seven centimetres with an asparagus harvest, come down the side and uh, and cut and harvest and, and you're looking for a 22 centimetre spear which is European standard what we've tried to follow. Um, some of them, um, you know, we have three ranges, we have, we have an A, a double A and a triple A and your triple A can be anywhere between 20 mil and 50 mil um, and up mm. to 150 grams so they're really substantial in their own right and they have the beautiful flavour of the earth they're absolutely gorgeous flavour. Well, yeah, I think they're yeah. It's so where where do you get where do you where do you get it? Where where would I find some white asparagus? Or is the is the season been and gone? Has it? Look, we've we've just finished. We've just finished the season. We we went for about eight weeks, and my back's um, never felt better. 
Um, use the but since you stopped, you mean? Since you've stopped. <laughs> since you've stopped. Um, and now we're into cut flower season. So um, we'll go into that to Christmas and then uh, we'll put our feet up and, and have a bit of a break. But to answer your question, um, we are dealing with uh, distributors throughout Australia. Um, and at the moment, due to demand, which is a, a ter- terrific problem to have, Maca. We actually aren't into supermarkets at the moment. It's it's um, high-end restaurants and so forth. But we're about to put another 20,000 crowns in, which will bring us up to 55,000. So we've, um, we've had a, a fantastic response from the public wanting to get it by the bunch, and I'm sure we'll get there in the not-too-distant future. Well, there you go. A man, you're an entrepreneur, Richard. You saw an opportunity and, uh, yeah, good luck to you, mate. I hope it goes well. I'm, I'm, next uh, season, I'm going to try and get some white asparagus because I remember it fondly. It was really lovely. I, I forget with, with butter or something they had. It was an Italian yeah, restaurant there. Yeah, very yeah. nice. Beautiful. Hollandaise. They, they traditionally have it with a hollandaise or a mm. burnt butter. Um, the profile for your, for, your, for your listeners is that beautiful sweetness followed by that incredible earthiness, and then you get that uh, slight bitterness on the palate. The henceforth, the, the, the burnt butter and the hollandaise really goes well with it. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch and we'll see if we can't throw you a bunch or two. All right. Weather report for Brighton in Tassie. Rich, quick. Uh, a little bit of rain overnight, perhaps two mil, uh, cloudy, nice and still. Um, it's going to be a nice day. Good on you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. All right. You take care. This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News. Let's talk about the environment. One of the things I've always said about the environment that you and I can do is to grow a tree thereby capturing carbon. The other thing that can be done for the environment, of course, is to reduce the world's population, but that's in the too hard basket for everybody. Pauline Hewitt says, Ian, I just wanted to point out that while growing trees does take carbon out of the atmosphere, it's really only half the story and that planting and growing trees is, in itself, not the magic fix we are all led to believe. The problem with this simplified version of the carbon problem is that although tree cropping does withdraw carbon from the atmosphere, a fire in those trees will immediately release the carbon back into the atmosphere. But that's assuming we, all the trees burn down. The missing part of the story is carbon storage. We know that much of the carbon we've released comes from carbon stored well below the surface of the earth in fuel deposits that took millions of years to develop. What we now need to do is actually replenish soil carbon by taking atmospheric carbon, converting it into carbon biomass in the form of plants and trees, burning them in a low oxygen atmosphere, known as the process of pyrolysis, and then placing it into the soil profile where it may remain as stored carbon for thousands of years, says Pauline. Thank you, Pauline. On the other hand, Rod Holcomb, who's from Orange in New South Wales, says... I've had letters over the desks of environment ministers, both state and federal, pointing out that the noxious weed program, that is removing noxious trees like willow trees and blackberry and athol pine, is a massive drought creation species extinction project. If it was abandoned 40 years ago, we wouldn't be in the climatic species extinction crisis that we are in now, says Rod. Speaking of athol pines, and remember 20 years ago I spoke to a bloke, 25 years ago, and he's out on the Fink River in the Territory, the oldest river in the world, and it's full of athelpine, grown and seeded. This is the tree. There are two athelpines. There's the athelpine, which is the big tree, and then there's a scrubby bush. 
But Rod Holcomb continues, the first thing about these athol pines is that they are not a pine but a flowering plant of the genus Tamarix. They're an African group of which there is one other in this country, a large multi-stemmed pink flowering shrub, which is reasonably common and is quite a useful garden plant here in Orange. They're both tough as old boots, which is why the tree, the athol pine tree, has done so well here. I've got quite a soft spot for these as they were planted around the stock camps on Wave Hill Station. I spent two and a half years there on Wave Hill, sometimes camping underneath them. Pointing out here to those unfamiliar with station life that a stock camp is both a group of men, often three stockmen and three jackaroos and a head stockman, and a physical place. A big place like Wave Hill had three stock camps. That's three groups of blokes and three physical places scattered around its five and a half thousand square kilometres. These consisted of a set of cattle yards, a bore for water and a rudimentary shed and a roof of spinifex thatch. Wave Hill gets 22 inches of rain each year, falling over four months of the summer, a very harsh and difficult environment for plants. Speaking as a horticulturalist, says Rod Holcomb, athol pine were a very good selection as a stock camp shade tree, providing much better shade than, say, a eucalyptus. I understand that they've spread around in some parts of western New South Wales and indeed in the Territory. And some engineers have convinced the government that somehow it's a problem, requiring huge amounts of taxpayers' dollars to be spent on their removal. Ian, the concept of fallow has been lost in the modern world. Plants absorb light and light is heat. Every time we cut down a tree, the place gets a little hotter. Likewise, every time a supposed weed is pulled out to be replaced by bare earth. None of the plants we call noxious weeds are an environmental problem. The environmental problem is us. We've cleared the forests and damaged the country. We should be glad that what's grown back has grown back, says Rod Holcomb. And Rod Holcomb's the author of A Guide to the Regeneration of the Australian Bush. This is the All Over News. Always interested to see the comments of my economics correspondents, Kieran Kelly and Lee Harkness, appear the following week in newspapers in various sorts of reports by politicians or commentators. I particularly refer to Kieran's comments about how increased immigration is causing housing distress and Lee's comments on how the current account surplus means we are paying our own way for the first time in many years. And speaking of inflation, Lee Harkness says, you may be interested, Ian, in William Diaper's account of inflation in Melbourne in about 1852 during the gold rush. William Diaper, spelled D-I-A-P-E-R, was an American adventurer who visited Australia between 1851 and 53 and kept a journal of his travels. He said of inflation at that time, lodgings could not be had for money. Eggs and oranges were a shilling each and everything else in proportion. English beggars were drinking half a dozen bottles of champagne daily at a guinea a bottle. Sailors' wages were 20 to 30 pounds a month. We're talking of 1851-52. Tradesmen's wages were from 3 pound to 10 pound a day. Boys were playing pitch and toss for 10 pound notes. The sailors, when the captains asked if they would go to England with them as one of their hands for a hundred pounds, for the sum generally answered the question with another, and that question was invariably whether the ship was for sale, because they said they had a notion of buying one with their loose cash, which they found difficult in consequence of having so much, and which, by the by, was very often true. He goes on, does William Diaper, to talk about the rampant crime in town, and then... Although I had £700 in my pocket, I was obliged to sleep that night in one of the dry areas under the Yarra Bridge. Lee Harkness concludes with the comment that 
Inflation then, Ian, was clearly worse than it is now. I suppose it's all relative. This is the All Over News, and it's about a year ago, more than a year ago, we were in Korokai post-flood to do a program, and that's where I met a bloke called Jordan Edmeads. He said good day, and then about three weeks later, he sent me an email from Tassie, and I'll read part of it. He says, I'm currently down in Tassie on one of the beach foreshores of the Kanamaluka River, that's the River Tamar, near Georgetown cleaning up marine debris washed up ashore and litter dumped by passers-by, part of a broader personal project to actively offer my respects to the Aboriginal people by cleaning and clearing every publicly accessible beach on the island and the surrounding ones, that is Flinders and King, etc. And yes, I'm aware it could take a decade, but it's my way of being more connected, informed and culturally aware He said at the time, this is a year ago, you wouldn't believe the conversations I'm having with the people who are coming along the path just three metres from where I'm cleaning up. I've found myself in a quite beautiful dilemma and people are intrigued. Long story short, I've given myself one rule on this project. No matter where the piece of rubbish or debris is, if I see it, I must get it. Sounds simple enough, right? But here's the reason I've been digging in the dirt in this estuary bank for two days straight now. I came across a handful of polystyrene balls from what may have been a burst beanbag. But what I soon discovered was not just a handful, but tens of thousands of these little white balls spread over a 40 metre stretch due to the movement of the tides. So, as per my principal rule here, I cannot leave until every single polystyrene... (laughs) I cannot leave until every single polystyrene ball has been collected and bagged up. I'm living in a camper van here for now for the foreseeable future, scraping at the earth with tools donated by passers-by, aided by a retired bloke called Pete, an angry, frustrated, depressed, brilliant guitarist who is slowly coming out of his shell and opening up to me. So many stories to share and not once have I pulled the camera out. Seems I'm living in a live documentary, said Jordan at the time, that was a year ago, and I'd wondered what had happened to him. So I emailed him and this arrived just the other day. He says, hey Macca, great to hear from you and yes, every single polystyrene ball we could see was collected along the Canamaluca Trail. In the end I was cleaning up there for six days and met some incredible people who stopped and gave me a hand. After we finished, I was even invited back to an impromptu curry night. Since then, I've been continuing my documentary shoot. Jordan Edmeads is a documentary maker. Following the Debris Raft Project, and you might remember Samuel McLennan rang us last week. He's the bloke that made this raft, this debris raft out of old polystyrene pipes and stuff. Anyway, Jordan says the highlight of this so far has been a chopper lift into the ocean. Picture this, a 2.2 tonne raft that looks like a dark dreadnought pirate ship of thick plastic pipes strapped up to a heavy lift chopper by one of the best in the business and sent soaring up into the sunny blue skies of southern Tassie and out over Parsons Bay on the Tasman Peninsula. The drone shot I managed to capture tells the whole story in one frame as the raft was gently set down on the water, just a stone's throw away from the huge row of fish farms. A bold homecoming of sorts, because the pipes were from old fish farms. It was quite a scene to witness and a moment that will be burnt into my mind for the rest of my life. It was a beautiful, bold statement, both visual and emotional, and a testament to the man who'd built it from scratch with his own two hands. Admittedly, no documentary can ever fully capture a personal challenge, a struggle and an achievement of this magnitude. And as Samuel, that's Samuel McLennan, swam out to the raft and climbed aboard his floating crown of waste for the first time, his fist pumped to the crowd watching from the beach said it all. I look forward to piecing together the story of this incredible day when I'm in post-production next year. 
The project is now carrying out a series of sea trials to test the sails and other safety components of the vessel in a range of conditions, with no official date set for the Hobart to Sydney run. Remember, Samuel last week told us about making sails out of oyster sacks. Jordan concludes, When I'm not shooting, I'm continuing to clean beaches around Tassie, and I've enjoyed it so much that I've decided to do them all. (laughs) Nothing simple. We've got an interactive map that we've built which allows us to tick off beaches as we clean them and upload photos of what we found for researchers to use. I'm loving being out on the coastlines at sunrise, searching out hard-to-get-to beaches from aerial maps and meeting and talking with lots of other people doing their part to keep our beaches clean. A good mix of work and play in the golden arms of Mother Nature, and as always, everywhere I go, I find community. All the best, says Jord. Jordan Edmeads. G'day, Macca. G'day. Yeah, this is Doug in uh, Kalgoorlie to bring your listeners and you up with, to date with our progress on the build or rebuild of the Kalgoorlie biplane, a uh, replica of the Kalgoorlie biplane. I spoke to you uh, at the end of July last year about how we set off on this. Mm. I just think uh, an update might be useful. Well, tell us about the how how's the rebuild of the yeah. Kalgoorlie biplane going? Well, Macca, um, the original plane was built in 1915 to plans sent out from Britain uh, by students at the Kalgoorlie School of Mines, and it flew. Uh, it became the first aircraft to be built and to fly in and to carry a paying passenger in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was uh, placed in the hands of the uh, the museum at that day had different standards and they let it fall to pieces in the courtyard and they eventually burn it. So uh, we decided uh, a bit over a year ago that we should build a replica. Good on uh, you. And uh, it's, it's not been without its difficulties, I've got to tell you. It, uh, we, we have less access to the type of timber that they use in the early days, but we're making great progress and we've had terrific support from the uh, city council here. So it was a uh, it was a timber plane. What sort of timber was it built out of? Uh, well, it had all the birch and and the uh, traditional timber that they use in those original biplanes, or the like the Sopwick pups and all the rest. Of it. This plane doesn't actually have a name, but it was properly designed. Mm. And the plans that uh, we working to were originally provided to the School of Mines students by the uh, British. Department of Defence of the day, uh, which is quite amazing when you think they'd send the plans out for a a plane in the middle of the war, 1915, (laughs) but they did. So uh, we've been using um, different timbers, plywoods and and even uh, some of the heavy uh, timber that we can get here, uh, only because we have to. And where do you Uh, get the people from? I mean, this is quite a skilled operation. Well, we've got a men's shed in town. They, they're marvellous uh, and uh, a lot of machinery. So the the lads that are on it, they're just all volunteers, of course. They're just building it uh, to the original plan. But you find the old boys, when they built the, or drew the plans, they put most of it on there, but there's these funny little bits that are not there. You know what they do with a house plan? You know, you buy a plan, a house off the plan, and if you think, well, oh, that's a nice-looking plan, I'll go and build that, you find that the, the numbers don't always add up. No, so it's been difficult. But we've had sponsorship from one of the uh, big uh, boutique brewers because the, the original School of Mines students got sponsorship, which they needed 
for uh, a brewery to put their name underneath the wing. So when the plane flew over, there was a bit of publicity, <laughs> early day advertising. We've managed to get a boutique brewer to do the same, and uh, he's been very generous. But we've now sourced most things, and uh, the fuselages are being assembled. Uh, the two major wings have been assembled. Most of the tailplane, when I say assembled, all ready in its timber form, all glued and and uh, we made up special little metal clips to put pull it all together, as they did in the original. Um, and the uh, the biggest problem we've got right now is, uh, as we're getting ready to assemble it into a plane, um, there's not enough room in the men's shed. So we've struck a deal with the city council to spend some of our money on building an extension to the men's shed, and uh, we'll build put the plane together in there. And uh, we've offered it to the council, which I think they look like they're going to accept to hang it out in the ceiling space of the oh, so Doug, it, bowl uh, the airport. Yeah, yeah. All oh, right, at the airport. So, Doug, it's not going to fly this little possum. Uh, no, that's what we, no, that, that's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, it won't won't fly. Um, we don't want any trouble with Casa or wherever they are. Uh, but it would fly, and and of course we've we struck a deal with some of those dizzy finger ladies to. Uh, Put all the uh, cloth on it and dope it up, and it it we're not making a clunky replica, just with solid timber and all that. They're they're properly filleted pieces of timber with all the bits of that are not needed for strength have been cut out. And uh, I mean, there's always a possibility if we put a proper motor engine in it, it could fly. But at the moment, uh, for permanent exhibition. We've put, uh, we've had manufactured, in fact, a uh, what they call them a 3D printed plastic version, uh, which you won't be able, to, well, you're impossible to tell it from the real thing, but maybe there's a real thing floating around. We could put it in there, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. It's always yeah. hope. Hope springs eternal, Doug. It'd be nice to see it fly, but um, just quickly tell me when this plane. The reason for getting this plane in Kalgoorlie was for what? Oh, it's part of our history. It was the first, as I said, the first uh, plane built and that flew in Western Australia had a paying passenger. So that, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about originally when it first came to Australia, this plane and the and the plane. Oh, it, it, right, the original, yeah. It, oh, well, they were school of mine students. They came from all over. In the early days of uh, Kalgoorlie, it was a, a hot pot for some pretty good technologists. And one of the students happened to be a pilot that had been trained at de Havilland in uh, in Britain mm. and he lobbed into Kalgoorlie to work in the mining industry and he and his mates decided they'd build a plane because you could imagine during the First World War it was the, the beginning of aircraft, fighter a- aircraft aviation, and yeah. a lot of public aviation, yeah, indeed, aviation itself. So they just thought, well, we, we've got a bit of school, we're young engineers, we'll... Uh, We'll bang a plane together, and they did, and very, very successfully. And there's a lot of photographs of it. Well, Doug, um, sometime when we come to Kalgoorlie, when people go to Kalgoorlie, they'll be able to see this at the uh, at the absolutely. airport. Well, that's what the plan. Yeah, hanging in a special airspace at the airport, yeah. uh, and I think it'll be very, very uh, an acceptable display. Exactly. Uh, all right, Doug, yeah. with, with an explanation underneath, so people can read all about it. Yep. Oh, yes, yes. Absolutely. They'll even be able to see who the brewer is. Weather report for Kalgoorlie. Uh, Doug, is it dry in Cal or has it been wet or what's the story? 
there's no rain in sight for several days. It's a clear blue sky, light breeze, 31 degrees today. Uh, we're in the middle of the, uh, or the beginning, really, of the biggest boom that Kalgoorlie's ever seen. We're right in the middle of the critical metals industry, uh, haven't got enough houses, terrible housing problems, uh, not enough people. I've never before, Macca, seen in Kalgoorlie, and I've lived here all my life, uh, signs in shops as you walk down Hannon and Burt Street, staff wanted to ply within immediate start. It's unbelievable. And so uh, the the health report here is that we're feeling a bit crooked because we haven't got enough people for these billion-dollar plants and industries that are being built, but we're looking pretty good. And uh, the weather here is just perfect again today and it'll be perfect again tomorrow. Doug, great to talk to you, mate. Yeah, thanks, Macca. Uh, good luck to your listeners. Bye. Thanks, bye. Hi, Macca. It's Chris from Frankston. Hi, Chris. Melbourne. Yep. Just a comment on white asparagus. Uh-huh. I was born in Germany um, many, many years ago, and I went to visit my cousin in the 90s, and it was just after winter, and the first crop, fresh crop they get is white asparagus. Mm-hmm. They get so excited over it when they go and visit someone. They take a bunch of asparagus, not flowers. That's their that's their spring. So that'd be what in March or something, spring. would it? Yeah, Mar- yeah. March yeah. or April yeah. or something. Yeah, March. Yeah, April. So yeah, it, it's quite a um, precious commodity, and you know they get so excited over it because, and it does taste beautiful too. Yes. Yes. Oh, we just had that call from uh, Richard in because I I was interested. Yeah, I was so, reading. I was reading through one of my. Uh, uh, papers and I realised that um, I'd done a story about white asparagus but look this is 30 years ago and um, and I remember going to an Italian restaurant where they served this white asparagus and it was it yep. was beautiful but I haven't seen it for ages and I thought I wonder No, if... I often wondered why we don't see it over here Well, yeah. well I think it was one of the reasons uh, here in Australia I think that it's declined is that um, it's it's very labour intensive. You've got to oh, sort of actually yeah, the cost of it, and and <laughs> it's not good for the back either. You've got to no. do, do a lot of bending. But um, but uh, Richard in Brighton, he's he uh, he does cut flowers, but he decided three years ago that there was an opportunity, um, and it is lovely stuff. And I'm sure and there's a lot of people from Europe, and it's, it's just not. I mean, food is the food's the go in all around the world. I mean. You know, you can see all the things that people, the madness people go on with truffles and all this sort of stuff and, yeah. and you know, all the food we never heard of like kale and all this sort of stuff. So food That's is right. the go and so he's seen a little opportunity so he's growing this uh, now yeah. in, in Tassie and and I think it's, yeah. It's, it's, well, good luck to him. Yeah, I'll say. And, uh, and yeah. it's very European but apparently a, a lovely a lovely taste of, yes, the earth as well. Well, especially, you know, the first fresh, Fresh produce they get after winter, so yeah, they're very get very excited over it. Chris, they go what, out early in the morning to make sure they get a bunch. <laughs> exactly, uh, Chris. Why did you come to Australia? Oh, to, back in the fifties, my parents, you know, we had um, accommodation problems, couldn't get any after the wars, and um, on TV they always advertise, "Come to Australia, there's a job waiting for you." Uh, All get, that, so, get, yeah, get, yeah. get the milk delivered and get the paper delivered every morning. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> All that sort well, of stuff. We lived, we lived on the Atherton Tablelands for five years. So it was funny you mentioned Tenaru Dam. My stepfather worked on that. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, so we ended up in Melbourne, but yeah, my parents, my mum was very unhappy because she couldn't speak the language and was so different. Um, but they loved it in the end, and you now I would never, never go back. <laughs> no, well, you go back to have a look, but then you just, you know, you've exactly. lived most yeah. of your life here, really, haven't you? So you exactly. Yes. You're a, no. you're another little Aussie like the rest of us. Yeah, <laughs> lovely show. Listen to it. When I can every Sunday, so very informative. Well, so I think yeah, the people who ring, uh, Chris, we're we're going to uh, Melbourne next Sunday morning, and yes, I know St Kilda. My daughter lives up there, so well, maybe... how long will you be there? From from what time to what time? Oh, well, from half past five till ten, and probably longer. Um, right, we'll hang around, and um, but I, I'm just hoping it doesn't drizzle. <laughs> but no, anyway, it'll be a beautiful day. Ah, oh, you're a champion, Chris. Good on you. <laughs> I'm, I'm Thanks glad. for your show, Maker. Yeah, really I'm, love it. I'm looking forward to having some white asparagus next uh, next spring. So it's it's sort of a September October, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, here, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, and uh, very yes. There you go. You give a bunch of asparagus, not flowers, eh? How about that? Yeah. Brenda, where are you? I'm in Mount Warrigal in um, the Illawarra. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How you doing? Bloody marvellous, thanks for asking. Okay. Um, I'm just ringing to, you were talking about trucks earlier, and this is, today is the 19th running of the um, Illawarra um, truck convoy. And um, they auction off, like, people to to get lead truck and everything. Mm. And before the engines even started, which they just started about, oh, probably... 15 minutes ago, they um, have raised already $1.9 million. Oh, isn't that great? Uh, and, um, and there's quite a the, few truck convoys on, on around Australia, which is which is great, or around Christmas. Where's your yeah. one start from? Where's this one start from? Westcliff Colliery mm-hmm. um, it's starting from. And they um, they head down through, like, down Mount Oosley, through Warrawong, down past Shell, uh, Stockland, Shell Harbour. Well, that'd be... And they've, how many trucks? Yeah. I'm not sure. I was trying to get that information. I couldn't find actually how many are there, but they... Um, Going down that big Mount Oosley. Wow, that'd be a sight to see. Yeah, and then they all end up at the um, Illawarra Airport mm. and they um, they have like a big family day. And this is the first time in three years that they've got the big family day going because they had missed out on it for two years with COVID. And last year they had to cancel the big family day because they had 90-kilometre winds blowing the crap out of everything. So the Illawarra Airport, that's is that where Haas is? is that no yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like the the leading truck, because um, they auctioned that off and it's uh Menai hauling and they second year I think in a row, I'm not I don't know if they've done it more than two years in a row. Three hundred thousand and one dollars to get it. And um, they've got a young man on board who's got a seat in the in the front. He's actually um, battling leukemia as we speak. And also, they the motorbikes headed off, and Coles, not the company, the people that work for Coles, they won the lead um, bid for the motorbikes. They raised two hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars for it. Wow! Holy mackerel, yeah. Brenda! That's really oh, great a, stuff. I love the, the truckies. All the streets are absolutely lined with um, 
all the all the people in the community. Um, they come out and watch it. They come out all the way down the main, the streets that they go along. They come out. They got their deck chairs and their rescues and their brollies and you name it. They've got it. It's it's just a huge huge thing that they're doing. Yeah, it's really beauty. good. Good on you, Brenda. Yeah. Thanks for good telling on. us about that. You're welcome. Cheers. See you. Bye. Jim, is it? It is, Maka. Good morning to you. G'day, Jim. Where are you? At just out of Wangaratta, a place called a little town called Burriman. Burriman. Yep. Burriman. Yeah, yeah. Heard, I've heard of it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but I you... rang a, Go on. a few years ago because I was on my way to China to install some horse walkers. The company manufactures them in South Australia. Mm-hmm. And that chap was just talking before about how we used to produce cars. Now we don't export anything. Well, mm-hmm. this little company does because. They're flying out this morning to commission some they put in a little bit earlier on this year. So there's still a little bit happens in Australia that we're smart enough to. Oh um, yeah, no, I don't think you were saying that. I just think it was a, it was a, a poor form to get rid of Holden. I think as I've always oh. said, we subsidise everything in Australia. I mean, why not subsidise our own bloody car? I mean, really. But anyway, we'd probably be making electric cars now, wouldn't we? Um, probably would. Yeah, not that and, I'm going to buy. And for a little bit. Of- for the little bit it costs to to subsidise some of those companies, to me it just seemed a bit backward when they thought they were going forward. Now, Jimmy, tell me, what are they exporting? They, it's horse walkers. They walk around in like a carousel, all in right, a circle, and yeah. you can put six, eight, ten, or more horses. And have, or say, three months ago, they because I installed some over there about five or six years ago, and they've just installed some more. And they're going over to commission them. They flew out this morning because I'm retired now, so mm-hmm. I no longer. These would be fairly large things, then, Jim. They are. They are. They've got roofs on them, and um, they're they're sort of a simple machine, but they're they're not because it took quite a few years to design them to get them to work as good as they do. So and I, as uh, efficiently. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I suppose in the olden days, uh, when you were a horse <laughs> trainer, you had five or ten horses, and you could. Get a couple of uh, your hands there to um, strappers to go and take them for a gallop, but now people have got forty and fifty and sixty horses, and you yep. can, you can't have forty or fifty, sixty uh, strappers riding them all around. So put them in the horse walker. <laughs> exactly, and that, that's about what it is. And that's so many companies that put have them installed. Especially when I was doing, it, you talk to them, they say, "Well, that saved us as it might cost them ninety thousand one of these pieces of equipment," and they. Save that in a year easily by, yeah. Uh, but I'd only have one or two people doing it, and they and they don't break down, and they don't ring in sick. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is too. When I was a kid, I always used to see blokes, mostly blokes, but sometimes women too, walking greyhounds. Um, yep. Now that may be. I don't see that anymore. Maybe that's because the 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 kennels and people who own greyhounds don't live in the suburb I live in, but they probably have. Uh, Horse walkers for greyhounds. <laughs> well, they, they they have rigged them up to tie a, a greyhound on to walk them around. Yeah, they have actually yeah. over the years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I used to think you'd have to walk a greyhound a long way, wouldn't you, to get it fit? I mean, you'd see these little tubby, portly blokes walking these greyhounds, and the greyhound's like as thin as a whip. They're, they're, yeah. They're, but you'd think, you know, they could walk forever. They could run and walk forever. You'd have to... It's, but anyway, just uh, just a thought, Jimmy. So what are you doing yeah. at the moment, Jim? 
that needs to um, be. We, I've got I've got some hay I'm picking up from a paddock next door just to take back to my place. Uh, yeah, um, that'll fill my day in. Have you got horses or cattle or something? No, no, no. I've got cattle, only a few. I've mm. only got a small block with, with a dozen dead running around. At, Bur- at, at Burriman, near Wang. Yeah, yep. Yeah, Burriman. Yeah, the old horse yeah. walkers, eh? So there you go. That, that'll that be the deal because horse racing is huge as I... Over, you know, over there in China and Singapore. And everywhere, um, and everywhere. Oh, and and. Yeah. and and once upon a time, you know, as I'd say, in, in the olden days, a trainer might have, you know, five or ten horses. But now yep. they've got 50, 60, 70 horses. And, yeah, so these horse walkers are all the go. So are we, yeah. are we leading the field in the world with horse walkers, are we? Well, when we've put some in America and even the, the Yanks said to us, how come we can't make these sort of things? <laughs> And, and we just looked at them and said, "Well, well we're Aussie, yeah, we're we're <laughs> clever in Australia. <laughs> no, it, it's horses. It, it's horses for course, horses for walkers, it, isn't it? Really, Jimmy? It, it, that's right. It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. It was it was a good job for me, and uh, and the people who are doing it now they enjoy it because you meet a lot of interesting people, whether they're in Asia or New Zealand or Australia. T- to me, I did it for fifteen years." And there are some great people out there with some great stories to tell you about their, their lives as well. Good on you, Jimmy. I'll talk to you sometime. Right. No worries, Macca. Thanks for the call. Macca, I live in Berlin, says Ben in Berlin, and the Germans are mad for white asparagus. We, we, we talked about white asparagus this morning. Mid-April until June, you see it infiltrate. <laughs> sounds like sounds like a spy, doesn't it? Mid-April until June, Ben says, it. you see it infiltrate every restaurant and dish around town. It only tastes good, however, with the hollandaise sauce. Good evening from Ben in Berlin. Ben, you're a champion. Macca says, Stuart, listening from Amsterdam this evening, our time. Been catching up with our three of our distributors at a huge trade show here last week for the marine industry. It's been between 3 to 10 degrees all week and a little wet for a few days, but not even cold. Wet weather will stop the locals riding bicycles. Great city, friendly people, great public transport and loads of history. A highlight would be Anne Frank House and the museum. A very sad story. Diary of Anne Frank came out. Look, would that have come out in the 50s, I'd say, the book? I think so. I think so. Picture of a, a koala there. Um, is there something on the back of it? No, there'll be something else. I'll read that whole pile of them. Um, maybe this is just back from overseas, says John. Lots of feral eucalypts in Portugal. I heard earlier about the koala count in South Queensland. I went to school at Brookstead and koalas were few and far between. As you know, I've done a fair bit of research on koalas, says John. John Lemon. Uh, in the Gunnedah area, my research has been, as well as the tablelands around Armadale. Yes, as the gentleman was saying, koalas have preferences for browse trees in their habitats. In Gunnedah, they love river red gum and poplar box trees. Around Armadale, they prefer apple box, stringy bark and red gum. They also eat many additional species as well. One thing, though, I would ask people who are considering commencing planting trees for koalas is to seek out what grows in the area, but it's crucial that the koalas browse trees as uh, the koala browse trees are part of a balanced planting of understory, midstory, and overstory trees and shrubs. 
It's so crucial that an endemic species list of, say, up to 20 or 30 species are selected. So often people plant a majority of koala tree species which won't end well. I love that phrase. It's not going to end well. (laughs) A balanced planting will provide habitat for a whole range of native fauna. As you know, my main area of expertise is habitat reconstruction, and after 35 years of experience, I consider it a privilege to share what I've learnt. Says John Lemon. He's an environmental consultant. We had John was at one of our OBs, and he, he, when he's got something to say, just like then, he lets us know, which is lovely. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, and <laughs> because <laughs> it was National Toilet Day or something like that, it's uh, the International Day of the Toilet because uh, I think the figure was 4.2 billion people and counting uh, without proper sanitation. And that's probably a conservative estimate. Um, Don says, my sister and I are very fortunate to have a holiday place at 1770 on the central Queensland coast. About 10 years ago, the Gladstone Regional Council installed a low-pressure sewerage system because it was cheaper than a normal system. Their system involves each homeowner having a macerator and pump installed to remove sewerage. They now have gifted these pumps to us to maintain. Gifted in inverted commas. In that time, we've had several call-outs for maintenance and we are now on our third pump. It went in in August. GRC, that's Gladstone Regional Council, I assume, have taken no responsibility. As a result, in a place where we pay in excess of 8,000 in council rates, including a sewerage component, this year alone we're out of pocket by over $8,000. And then, of course, there's the environmental issue when these pumps break and there's overflow. Can this be the 21st century, says Margot Perrett? Margot, I, I fear it is. Quick, Andy's in Jin Jin. Is that right? Yeah, how you going, Maka? You're good, thanks, Andy. What's up? Yeah, I just left home about 5 o'clock from a place called North Dandlup, which is sort of 20 k's east of Mandra, mm. and I'm heading up to Durian Bay, which is about another... It's about almost 320 k's from my place, and I've just gone past Jin Jin in West Australia, and I'm going up there to extract some honey from our beehives. Oh, wow. And you have you haven't got um, you haven't got the varroa over there, so that's good. No, no, I checked the hives. No, all cool. We got no disease here. We got to keep keep our bees away from these estates, bees. Exactly. How? Uh, what sort of honey do the bees? Uh, what? Well, what, at, what at they... the moment, yeah. at the moment, up at Julian, I'm talking to me mate. He rang me on Friday saying their hives are full again, and they've been sort of. He's got a heap of coastal mort, like gum trees. Yeah. And they're going berserk in them. Well, that's, and how long have you been a beekeeper, Andy? Oh, no, this is this is only... Um, I I got three hives in Durian and one at North Dandlup, and he's, my mate's got five up here. Oh, I see. We just do it as a hobby, and we sort of give some away to friends and that, and now we're starting to sell it to cover our costs in fuel, and we had to buy some new frames and new boxes and that. All right, Andy. Well, good luck, mate. I'll see you sometime. Where do you live? North Dandlup. North Dandlup. I don't think you I've know been... Mandra? Yeah, I do. Mandra? Just near there. Well, that's there. It's about twenty k's east of uh, Mandra. All right, mate. Got to fly. Good on you, Andy. Thanks, mate. All right, see you, mate.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.